That's a series wrap on Leo Spichemin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for January 27th, 2020. The month is almost over for episode 16. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. Evan, you know, I ask you this a lot, but I have a short memory. What what are we doing here? Well, Joe, I'm happy to tell you again. We are discussing topics, ideas, facts and figures, all to try to keep our audience adequately informed through our own unique brand of good faith discussion, making sure that we consider all angles and evaluate them fairly. Or at least try to. Um, No, we will do it. That's a guarantee. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I don't think that's in the spirit of things. Um, Well, aren't we on the ivory tower? No, we're not. That's I was oh. just about to say that. You 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 jumped the gun. We're I've not got a short on the memory I- too. Yeah. Yeah, we're we only learned our own bits and we just turn <laughs> off when the other one goes on their shtick. But we are not on the ivory tower, which means that we don't know everything. We our views aren't above everyone's else's. Uh we are Fallible. We are going to be wrong a lot. And we acknowledge that. And we hope to be wrong as little as possible. And we want to consider that, you know, even people who think differently than us can have a valid viewpoint and that that could be something okay. It may be all right right that Joe Rogan endorses Bernie Sanders. But anyway... Not touching it. I am not touching it. Hey, Evan. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Well, Joe, today I want to introduce a segment called If I Picked the Winners. And this is something that I'm actually sort of borrowing from a couple of my icons, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel from their At The Movies program. And it's something they would do around Oscar time. And they would go through some of the major categories and say that if they got a vote, that's what they would pick to win the category. So a couple of disclaimers of what this is not. This is not a prediction. I'm not going to pick whatever I think has the best chance to win because that's a story for another time. And there's, there's merit to that. And I'll do Oscar predictions, probably not on air, but that's not what this is. And the other thing that it's not is it's not my absolute favorite movies and performances of the year. For those, you can check out the Evies, which will be dropping on Midwestern Perspective before the Oscars. So without further ado, here is If I Picked the Winners. So so let me get this straight. You are it's it's taking like the Oscar nominees and then your choices on the Oscar nominees. Yes, among what is nominated, what is my favorite? Okay, so I'm trying to figure out, you know, what all the big circles and small circles are within each other. So the Evies is your choices and what you all out think is great. This is through the sub-selection of the Oscar nominees and what your selections are constrained by the Oscar nominees. Correct. Okay, just want to make sure. Is there yep. a smaller circle that we can go to in the middle? 
um, maybe like the the predictions where I have to try to guess what the Oscar voters picked. But mm. until but. next time, or the next <laughs> next time, whatever time. Yeah. Anyway. So I'm going to keep it pretty simple, and we're going to start with best documentary feature. The nominated films are American Factory, The Cave, The Edge of Democracy, For Sama, and Honeyland. And if I could pick the winner, it would be For Sama. This is a really gut-wrenching movie about the Syrian crisis told through the lens of a woman documenting her time there in Aleppo while also trying to raise her young child. It is very tough to watch, but it is a really rewarding and unforgettable experience. Okay. But what about Aleppo? Oh, what is Aleppo? Gary Johnson? Yeah. Yeah. Best animated feature. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The nominees for best animated feature at the Oscars this year are How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, I Lost My Body, Klaus, Missing Link, and Toy Story 4. And my pick would be Toy Story 4. Um, I'm a sucker for Pixar, and I feel like Toy Story 4 isn't quite at the level of the first three, but still uh, an emotionally mature film, a very interesting film, a very funny film. And in a year of weak animation, it's the clear winner to me. Missing Link is good. Don't get me wrong. Missing Link is a good movie, and it might win. But Toy Story 4 is my pick. Man, I need to see Toy Story 4. I haven't seen that yet. I'll get on it. I don't need to see the rest of them. I haven't heard of any of them. Not even the How to Train Your Dragon one? I've heard of How to Train a Dragon, or your dragon, or someone's dragon, but (laughs) not that specific iteration of it. Well, it's the last one of their trilogy, and it was very disappointing. Damn. Best Adapted Screenplay. The nominees are... The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, and The Two Popes. And my pick for adapted screenplay would be Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi, based on the novel Caging Skies by Christine Lunens. I can't pronounce it. Um, Jojo Rabbit sort of threads that needle of being a comedy about the Hitler youth, but Taika Waititi has a really good grasp on it. He also plays the imaginary conjuration of Adolf Hitler, the young boy Jojo's imaginary friend. And when there's something that needs to be told seriously, Waititi is able to tell it seriously while maintaining moments of levity when appropriate. So I really like Jojo Rabbit. And in the adapted screenplay category, it, it seems to be the strongest for me. So my biggest question was Joker was based on a novel or book or comic book. So one of the things with adapted screenplay is that you can get it for being based on anything. So Joker is based on the Joker character created by Bill Finger, Bob Kane and Jerry <laughs> Robinson. So for that reason, it's an adapted screenplay instead of an original screenplay. So the Angry Birds movie was an adaptive screenplay. 
I don't think the Academy really thought through that one specifically, but I could see the argument to be made, yes, based on the app. Every movie is an adapted screenplay from my thoughts. Well, and you do get that sometimes because, for example, The Two Popes is in Best Adapted Screenplay because it's based on a play called The Pope, but the screenplay (laughs) and the play were written by the same guy, Anthony McCartan. So... You know, it's it's not always the clearest distinction. How could two popes be based on the pope? That's one less pope. <laughs> You'd have to ask Anthony McCartan, but that's it's fair, and I don't have a good answer for you, sir. Yeah, he, cre- you he created this? another pope. Yeah. Oh, okay. Is it the sequel? <laughs> <laughs> the two popes, two two pope, two Catholic, two two pope pulpening. Anyway, next category. Original screenplay. Your nominees are Knives Out, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. And my pick, if I were able to wave my magic wand, would be Marriage Story, Noah Baumbach. It is a gorgeous film that, like Jojo Rabbit, is able to really deftly walk this line with very serious drama and moments of lighthearted comedy. One of my favorite lines in any movie I've ever seen is when Scarlett Johansson's character, Nicole Barber is explaining her situation as she's going through the separation from Adam driver's character, Charlie. And she refers to him as her husband or her ex-husband and then stops herself and says, well, my soon to be ex-husband, what's the opposite of fiance? And I just think that is so funny. <laughs> and and it's that those moments of really witty dialogue that make Marriage Story stand out in a pretty solid original screenplay category. I think it's Deonce. Deonce. <laughs> Dude, think, that is good. <laughs> I think that's the I think that's the answer. Beyonce. Yeah, because you're you're getting you're getting out of it, so D, the prefix D makes sense, and then it still rhymes. I, I like it. I'm going with it. Um, <laughs> I hope to never be in that world, but I if anybody if I ever know anybody personally going through that, I'm going to lobby heavily for them to call them their Deonce. You're gonna go up, listen, I know you're going through a tough time, but you have to call them your Deonce. <laughs> I'm trying to get this word going. Can you please help me? I have everything leveraged on Deonce. I have a whole Amazon store that I'm about to open up with things that just say Deonce on it. (laughs) Oh, geez. I can't top it. I can't top it. So I can only move on to the next category. Best Supporting Actress. The nominees are Kathy Bates for Richard Jewell, Laura Dern for Marriage Story, Scarlett Johansson, Jojo Rabbit, Florence Pugh, Little Women, and Margot Robbie, Bombshell. And if I could pick the winner, I would have to give it to Scarlett Johansson for Jojo Rabbit. She has, I think, a pretty complex role because she's the mother of the main character, Jojo. But as you find out, she is sort of just putting on an act of letting him be in the Hitler youth. And she's actually much more sympathetic to the Jewish cause and the resistance. And 
She's got some really heartwarming moments where she has this genuine love for her son. And she's also got more showy performative moments. There's a scene where because Jojo's father is off fighting in the war, he's upset that he's, he's missing his father. And she sort of has to do this scene where she pretends to be his father. That is simultaneously very funny and also very heartwarming because She's trying to comfort her son who is caught in this very difficult period in history. And so it really runs the full emotional range for me. And I, I find it to be a, an extremely deserving performance. Now, Evan, did she take this role away from a deserving actual German mother? Possibly. All right, next category. Best Supporting Actor. Your nominees are... Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Anthony Hopkins, The Two Popes. He's one of the two popes there, Joe. Al Pacino, <laughs> The Irishman. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Two popes implies two co-equal popes. And that is sort of a criticism that the two popes do share a lot of screen time. Um, and therefore, it's probably unfair to ca- characterize one as lead and one as supporting. But uh, the other pope, Jonathan Price. He, he has more flashbacks, so I think he ends up getting more screen time <laughs> through flashback. Oh, shit. You're the main character because you have more memories. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's basically it. Um, so Al Pacino, the Irishman, Joe Pesci, the Irishman and Brad Pitt, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And my pick, if I were in charge, would be. Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I was a little bit nervous when I saw this decision because I I don't think of Tom Hanks as a guy who really commits to a character. He sort of just is Tom Hanks. I think Saving Mr. Banks went really poorly. I really hated that movie. Um, but I think Tom Hanks really flexed all of his strongest acting muscles and tried to not imitate Mr. Rogers, but embody his essence in a way that really, when, when, when I didn't think I could be surprised anymore, it surprised me. And it's such a beautiful performance and such a beautiful film that it, it would be a lock for me. Well, and if I were to pick at these, the, I would have to choose between Al Pacino and, <laughs> and Joe Pesci, because that's or like the one movie. between... I picked Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. Really? I like his. I like his character way more. I mean, I. I mean, I guess this is character over acting or whatever. But I like. It's uh, all kind of related. Yeah. 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 So I liked Joe Pesci's deal more than Al Pacino's deal. I just really thought, and and nothing against either of them, but in my own award show, The Evies, I nominated Pacino, but not Joe Pesci. I, I just think that the the charisma of that Jimmy Hoffa character is is maybe a showier performance, but that's kind of the cool thing about uh, the Russell Buffalino character and Joe Pesci's performance is that it's very reserved and it's not unhinged like we were typically used to seeing from Pesci. You see, I liked the reserved people. So maybe that's <laughs> and yeah, and, I'm know, sure it's a part of it in life in general, man, it's like <laughs> things are subjective. Next category. Best actress, Cynthia Arrivo, Harriet, Scarlett Johansson, marriage story, Saoirse Ronan, little women, 
Charlize Theron, Bombshell, and Renee Zellweger, Judy. And here I was very tempted to go with the front runner, who's Renee Zellweger from Judy, but I'm actually going to go ahead and give it to Scarlett Johansson for Marriage Story. I don't think she's going to walk away with either award come Oscar night, but I, if, I, if it was up to me, she would turn from a double nominee into a double winner for her fantastic work in Marriage Story. Did she steal that role from a deserving, soon-to-be-divorced divorcee? Most definitely. Okay, anyway, next category. Best Actor, Antonio Banderas, Pain and Glory, Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Adam Driver, Marriage Story, Joaquin Phoenix, Joker, and Jonathan Price, the second of the two popes. <laughs> I just like the idea of like there being two uh, you know, trailers for the actors to go to, and one's just Pope One and the other's Pope Two. Yeah, but they don't tell them which is which. Yeah, and they both have like the Pope chair, you know, the the papal see in each trailer, so they get to like role play. Oh man. <laughs> and so my pick would be Adam Driver for Marriage Story. Recently on the podcast, I kind of detailed what I love about Adam Driver and what I love about what he does in Marriage Story. Um, he's got some of those really great showcase moments, but even there's a scene where he's accidentally cut himself and is gotten woozy and is now lying on the floor and his son walks in and he just uh, asks if he's okay. And he was like, Oh yeah, I'm just resting. (laughs) It's just such a small (laughs) moment, but it's so perfectly delivered and everything he does within that movie and that performance is pretty near to perfect. And so I would happily give the Oscar to Adam Driver. Good for him. I don't have anything to add. It'll happen someday, very, very soon. Best Director. The nominees are Martin Scorsese, The Irishman, Todd Phillips, Joker, Sam Mendes, 1917, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Bong Joon-ho, Parasite. And if I could pick the winner, it would be Bong Joon-ho, Parasite. I think that where, for me, the split between Best Picture and Best Director lies is that Best Picture should be the movie that moves you the most, and Best Director should go to the film with the most obvious craft and maybe the most innovative or risky film. And I think Parasite checks those boxes for me. It takes so many twists and turns that you're not expecting. It has this biting social commentary that make it a fantastic film and a movie that I think only Bong Juno could have made. So I would I would give him the award. Yeah, I I uh, even though I am not nearly as into movies as Evan is, I am definitely into like directors and movies that. You can tell when you watch them, they have like one big grand vision for them. And that's one thing I liked about The Irishman when I watched it was, I mean, this wasn't a movie just kind of thrown together by a bunch of people who are like, yeah, we got hired on to make a script into a movie. It was a guy who had a vision for a movie and executed that For years. Yeah. Yeah. So 
you know, over the course of whatever, three and a half hours or two and a half, whatever it is, <laughs> it's hard to, uh, that movie would not work at all if there wasn't like some singular directorial vision. And I do like, you know, movies that have that. I haven't seen Parasite, but if it has a strong directorial vision, then there's a good chance I'd like that. Yeah, I recommend it. It's actually, since it's getting so much awards buzz, they're putting it back into a lot of theaters and re-releasing it. It was a global box office phenomenon, made over $100 million at the global box office, which is unheard of for a South Korean drama. So I recommend it. See if you can find it somewhere. Now, if I could just find a minute. Anyway, next category. (laughs) The next category is the final category, and that would be... I'm glad you said it's the final category, because I would have totally ended this segment and gone, next category. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) best picture. (laughs) I think you would have figured it out. It's best picture. That's what this this has all been building to. And the best picture nominees are Ford v. Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker... Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. And I have to say, I saw 1917 on Friday, and I absolutely loved it. And it really made me think carefully about this pick. But ultimately, it didn't sway me from my gut choice, which is Marriage Story. And I don't think that really surprises anyone at this point. Marriage Story is such a deeply felt rendering of its subject matter with fantastic performances, emotion, humor, humanity, just so much humanity running through the film. Essentially, it's a love story told at the end. And we have these two people who I believe are presented as fundamentally good people But we see the ugliness that comes out of this ugly process, even with two good people. And I think it's it's very fair to all of its characters. And by the end, I think that it has made many meaningful observations about love. And that's that's what I'm looking for. Good observations and emotional resonance. And I would not change a thing about Marriage Story. Of the nominated films, that is my pick. All right. Good pick. (laughs) All right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, everyone, I would love to hear what your choices are. And please drop us a comment, send us an email, or just text me. I don't care. Make a list. Share it with Evan. He'll check it over. And uh, send it back to you with revisions. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's that's just my little homage to Siskel and Ebert, who are deeply important to me at this this Oscar season time. And with that, I have to ask Joe. Oh shit! Do you what? What Evan? What do you want to talk about? Oh shit! What do I want to talk about? So this past week. We, uh, through the month of January, we went through another Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I am once again reminded by, you know, this concept that I've been working on for a while. And it seems that in American history, that everything that is in the history, that is in the past, 
at least for most people, is apolitical, meaning that it politics has nothing to do with it. It's the course of history. It was what was deigned to happen. It is, uh, you know, just on the good merits alone, it is what it is. And there's nothing, you know, political about it. But it, it it's always so striking to me because Martin Luther King Jr., was the most one of the most politically divisive figures in American politics at the time, not because he was, you know, trying to be divisive or piss people off, but because he was trying to fight for the rights of African-American people to be created, you know, to be seen as equal in the eyes of the American government. And you can't find a person. Well, I'm sure you could. But a nobody today is thinking, oh, MLK was a great divider. He hurt our country. He he is a bad figure and should not be celebrated. I mean, <laughs> he is like the go-to African-American figure whenever uh, someone asks, you know, a bunch of normally Republican, but, you know, other people. Uh, you know, representatives or who public figures, and they're like, you know, who's a African American leader who you really look to and admire? And they're all like Martin Luther King Jr. And he gets this because one, his actions were in the past, and two, he was assassinated. So everything he did was squarely in the past. And because of that, since things that are squarely in the past are apolitical in American history, then he is apolitical and he can be celebrated. Like, you know, at the time of the great new or the, you know, the yeah, the New Deal, every, you know, everything was hotly politically contested. But now it's just American history, a history of, you know, whatever greatness Ronald Reagan, when he was in Congress, was controversial, political. Everything he did was very political. And now, uh, once again, it's just American history. And I can feel the apoliticalness starting to come for George W. Bush, um, which is scary because it was very political and should still be very contested today, his legacy. But that's another story. But... With civil rights and it turning apolitical, it is now just seen as a righteous story of good triumphing over evil. And the evil is also in the past. The evil no longer exists because it was triumphed by civil rights. But the evil civil rights movement was trying to fight against wasn't wholly squashed. I mean, people are still racist today. And since people believe it's all in the past, we believe the work is done. And it leads us to believe that, you know, we took care of racism. We don't have to do anything about it now. Even though Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated for his work on civil rights, for his views on, you know, not just, you know, race relations, but also on 
uh, you know, unions and living wages and all this other stuff. He, he he was a very controversial figure. But today we, you know, since he is squarely in the past, we can just celebrate. We can choose to just celebrate what we find unquestionably good about him and not what which was controversial, even though at the time, at the height of his uh you know national exposure for the civil rights movement a poll of white people found that like 80 percent of them felt that what he was doing was hurting his cause 80 percent thought that martin luther king jr was in the wrong in how he was going about things and now he is upheld as the person who did it all right and it just feels weird when we don't interface with that side of it. And, you know, we can see just one last thing before Evan get your comments in. We can see that there are civil rights leaders who have made it to the present era that do not have the wholly untainted reputation that Martin Luther King Jr. has in the eyes of most like uh, Representative John Lewis or uh, Al Sharpton. You know, they were big leaders in the civil rights movement as well, but they've been alive until the current era. So their legacy is still political. There are still people trying to win over them so they can take contest to what they did. And it's just weird that Martin Luther King Jr., the most political among them, is seen as apolitical, which, you know, I guess could be a good thing, but also washes away whatever, you know, the more complicated parts of what he was fighting against. Yeah, so I like to think about this in terms of when we talk about being on the right side of history. And I actually don't like, I, I don't necessarily love to talk about things in that lens because I don't think Martin Luther King was fighting for what he fought for so that someday after he was dead, he would have a national holiday and be a hero. He was fighting for it because he thought that he thought that's what was right. And that is what would bring positive change to people's lives. History be damned. And so I don't necessarily think doing something to be on the right side of history is a good intrinsic argument for doing it. But I think that it definitely shapes how people are perceived then later. He was essentially too progressive for his time. He was speaking to things that would eventually become commonly accepted truths. But I think Joe makes a really good point that if we overlook how unpopular he was in his time, we don't get a real sense of the struggle that it took to get change accomplished. And also, I think it overlooks how far we still have to go. Uh, Again, I I completely agree with what Joe was saying that there's still, even though we take this as sort of settled history, there's still so much of King's vision that is left unfulfilled. In addition to people still being racist, systems are still hugely racist. The criminal justice system and big parts of our social and economic policy and when we can say, well, Martin Luther King, he was a great guy, let's honor his legacy, it makes it seem like 
his cause is not still active, which it very much is. And even to move beyond race, he was a man who espoused a lot of things that we would think of as socialist ideas as well. He talked about ending poverty and making sure that we had economic justice in addition to racial justice. And so I just think that it's important that when we honor historical figures, that we give the full context of what their life and times were really like. And that's why I think Ava DuVernay's 2014 film Selma is a really fantastic film because it it engages with Martin Luther King on that level. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of history still being political because then we at least interface with it in a real way. Like people like to rag on revisionist history like a bunch of people are somehow going through and changing history. Um but it's just changing the focal point of the story and all that stuff. Like one example that I've really liked, well, you know, probably my favorite book of last year, uh, These Truths by Jill Lepore, which is a one volume history of the United States. It's like 900 pages long, which is why I only read like six books last year. And <laughs> it looked at the... American history through the lens of racial justice and inequality and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that doesn't change, you know, the fact that, you know, maybe the, you know, founders, you know, despite their issues, you know, they were moral men and, you know, they were trying to create a more perfect union and a better way for man and more just society. But then there were definitely some politics that left some parts of that out some parts of a more rational, grander system were definitely left on the cutting room floor or weren't even considered at the founding. But it seems like through time we've come to recognize that, but we just see it as the the arc of history bending towards justice when in fact, you know, if there weren't key players and social movements and changes in ideas of how society should roll there. None of that would have happened. And here's where I think this is really important. And I think it kind of ties into something that Martin Luther King himself had talked about is that uh, there are people who are always going to want to fight for a progressive cause. And I don't think it matters whether we, they view history as political or apolitical or what have you. And there's some people who are always going to want to fight in the opposite direction. But there's a huge group of people in the middle who have a real opportunity to sway public opinion and public action in either direction. And Martin Luther King talked about how it was these moderates who refused to accept the views of justice that were really toxic and dangerous. And so by trying to depoliticize his legacy – we are making a climate where it's easier for those that big group of moderates to fall into the trap that King explicitly warned about and to become complacent and not willing to fight to advance these causes. Yeah, didn't he say like their biggest hurdle was indifferent white folk, people yep. who would be amenable to their ideas but would not you know, profess them? Yeah, um, wouldn't fight for it. Yeah. 
we all have our own roles in social change if you know if that's something you're about and you know using your voice or whatever you know it is political it is uncomfortable but if you believe in something then you believe in something you know this is going to be a side an aside since i brought up like the founding and american history but it feels like a good amount of american history is like starting off with some moral contradiction and then over time trying to undo that moral contradiction <laughs> like all men are created equal but not the blacks or the women or anybody else that aren't white men and then slowly hey wait a minute that doesn't make sense and just slowly going over time so i wonder what the yeah. contradict you know like the contradiction today may be ah we believe in equal opportunity but Oh, wow. We uh, let some kids have lead in their water or uh, not get adequate schooling or shit like that. So, you know, I, I wonder. To your point about ideals, I think that that is kind of interesting that the founders sort of wrote in this really universal flowery language that none of the underlying laws really upheld. And then we've just had different activists over time trying to push us closer to the inclusive nature of those stated ideals. I wonder I wonder if that was sort of their goal all along or if they were just trying to sound really uh, important and universal when that was never the intention. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the founders, but I know this – this project specifically was kind of the undertaking of Frederick Douglass, where mm. he was one of the first people to realize that, like, when he started out, he railed against the Constitution. He hated it. He wanted it to be overturned He because, you know, <laughs> it, treat, it treated black people as three fifths of a person with no legal rights. You know, yeah. you would want to overturn that whole fucking thing if that was how it treated you. But he found that that wasn't getting any traction, none at all, you know, even just 60 or 70 years after its ratification. So what he found was that he, you know, he was able to find an angle in which he could find the rights that he was looking for in the spirit of the Constitution, while not in the letter of the law of the Constitution. And that has been, you know, pretty much the kind of liberal, progressive, forward, socially forward-thinking way to interpret the Constitution is not throw it all out, but find the ideals in it and find ways in which it's not currently living up to those ideals and change it so that it does fit within those ideals. It's a good play. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. All right, so th this uh, this brings us to our main segment, which has the chance to be a round of wild gesticulation with Joe and Evan. Um, but this is going to be on the Iowa caucus, which is coming up. I believe it's on February 4th next week. Fourth or is it the third? Hmm. Well, the third is Monday. The third is Monday. The fourth is Tuesday. So is it on a Monday or a Tuesday? It's Monday. 
then that would be the third. Yep. Uh, I just Googled it. So it's on Monday the 3rd, the Iowa caucus. I, a bunch of people in Iowa will gather around in, in gyms and places, and for three to four hours we'll decide who the next presidential nominee for president is for the Democratic Party. I said about everything twice in that lead up. So, Evan, what's going on? Well, uh, candidates are ramping up their efforts specifically in Iowa. Anybody who's anybody is now based out of Iowa. That does not include Michael Bloomberg because he is skipping the early states because he entered the race too late and also because he's an ass clown. And who was that guy early on who was like really progressive and he just his social media tactic was like shit posting Gravel, Mike Gravel. Yeah, it feels like Bloomberg has taken up Gravel's mantle in that, you know, at least the style of trying to promote his campaign. Just ah, I'm not going to make a whole bunch of statements, but, you know, here's some memes. Call them here's out. Hundreds Here's hundreds of millions of dollars of TV ads. Yeah. And but but well, what Gravel I see was, what I see are the memes. I don't see the TV ads. Oh wow, good for you cuz they're everywhere. Um but essentially Gravel this is kind of a, a digression but I'll, I want to talk about Hey, it's wild Gravel, gesticulation. <laughs> Yeah, so Gravel's bit was basically he's this progressive Alaskan senator who really hasn't been in the political discourse since the 80s, but there was like two college students in Alaska who came to him and said, listen, we like you, we appreciate you, we want you to run for president. And he basically told them, okay, if you guys do everything and run this campaign, we can do a little little presidential campaign. And so he basically had these two interns just running it. He didn't even really care. And then he eventually dropped out. Yeah. So anyway, we are in the lead up. Yeah, so everyone's, yeah, that, everyone's in Iowa and uh, things are getting, things are getting tight. Yeah. It's looking like we're going into a kind of four way tie so far in the polling in the lead up to the Iowa poll or the Iowa caucus between Sanders, who has in the most recent polls taken a lead, Biden, Buttigieg and Warren, all four could conceivably win this. I mean, I guess anybody can conceivably win this, but within a margin of error and a bell curve and statistics, we can determine that. Those four are the most likely to win. So the 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 stuff that I saw didn't maybe have it in a four-way tie, though those are definitely clearly the four front runners. I'm seeing a very narrow margin between Bernie and Biden, with Bernie perhaps having a bit more momentum than with Buttigieg in third and Warren in fourth, although the Des Moines Register just endorsed Elizabeth Warren, although um that probably doesn't mean a whole lot anymore. Uh, newspaper endorsement. And but who so, knows? It's Iowa. They take a lot of things very seriously that everybody else doesn't take very seriously. So maybe they take the Des Moines Register like hometown pride. This is what they do. They tell us. Or I don't know. That was offensive in some way. But anyway, people from Iowa, they like to choose. 
Yeah. And so I, I kind of see it really as a a race between Bernie and Biden at this point. And I think we'll kind of see preliminarily. And again, we've we, earlier we discussed the inherent limitations of trying to use Iowa as a gauge for the rest of the country. But with that caveat, we will get to see for the first time if voters are leaning more progressive or more moderate. And then I think that Buttigieg and Warren, whoever whoever can take third place, you know, it won't be an electoral victory, but it'll be a momentum victory that can help them pick up steam going into New Hampshire. Yeah. Well, but I- as Joe said, anything could happen. We could see one of those third or fourth place or even more distant candidates rise up. It, it's tough to say. Yeah. It, Iowa is just kind of weird because they do the caucus thing, which not a whole lot of other states do because it's kind of antiquated. It's kind of insidery, which, you know, I'm thinking maybe better. Maybe we should all switch to caucuses, but that's for a different time. But what you end up getting is you get the most fervent supporters that show up for it. Because I said this in passing earlier, but a caucus is, it's not like a primary is just like a vote. You go in, you're like, hey, here's the ballot and uh, here are my choices. And you do it in secret and, you know, everybody who shows up and is registered can go and do it. In a caucus, you have to show up. And then you're there for a long time because you do rounds. So you first start off, everybody goes and stands in different areas where in groups with who they, uh, with similar people who voting for the same people. So all the Warren people go stand in one place and all the Sanders people stand together. And then they slowly over time, they whittle it down until there are two people and one is declared the winner of that precinct. And it takes a while because it takes a while to shuffle people around. And you're also voting on other things that aren't just the presidential uh, nominee. And a lot of people don't have a lot of time. They don't have three to four hours to go, you know, fuck around and stand in a gymnasium. So you oftentimes get the most fervent supporters, the people who are most engaged on the process, the people who feel most passionately about someone. No one's like, oh, there's a caucus today. You know what? I, I think I can pencil that in. I'll get I'll get to that. <laughs> no, they're, they're everything, you know, especially in Iowa, everything is fucking planned around this. Everyone's like, it's caucus day. I'm going or I'm not going. Um, So. And yeah, with Sanders, you know, he's getting this little bump now and, you know, he has always had good ground game and his fervent supporters are fervent. They're foaming at the mouth. So, you know, who knows? But then also, again, Iowa, you know, Iowa and the Democratic nominating contests are a little odd because delegates are awarded proportionally. So... Like last time, the last Iowa caucus, when uh, Hillary Clinton won, but just barely, you know, it was like 48.9 to 48.8 or some shit like that. (laughs) Hillary Clinton only got like one more delegate 
out of the whole deal than Bernie did. So he didn't lose that bad. And anyone who, you know, loses in Iowa, they, you know, still tend to get some delegates, even if you come in second or third or fourth. So it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think, yeah, I'm leaning a little bit more towards forecasting a narrow victory for Bernie just because I think the momentum factor is kind of on his side right now. Um, He is closing the gap in national polling and he's taken a slight lead in most of the Iowa polls. And then, like Joe said, he, he really inspires the people who like him. If you are a Bernie supporter in Iowa, I think you're less likely to stay home than someone who casually supports Joe Biden. So um, either way, though, it'll probably be close and won't affect the delegate count all too much. But there's that symbolic importance of that first victory. Uh, in America, we love things that don't matter mattering. Yes, we uh, do. <laughs> they won one more delegate and that means everything. Um, but yeah. Iowa is a place to shine or not for candidates who aren't the establishment favorite. Barack Obama famously got a very big surprise Iowa win when he was able to get a whole lot. You know, he was able to get a whole bunch of people who had never caucused before to come and caucus for him. And that wasn't in anybody's models or in the polls. So he was able to pull out a victory there against uh clinton don't forget adequately informed favorite howard dean howard dean if you had told us one year ago that we were going to come in third in iowa we would have given anything for that and you know something you know something not only are we going to new hampshire tom harkin we're going to south carolina and oklahoma and arizona and north dakota and new mexico we're going to california and texas and new york and we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah, yeah use but, the scream again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to insert that again. Um, so and then the again, the last time we went to Iowa, we had the very narrow tie. I remember the last Iowa caucus very much because I was driving home. I think I was I working as a career. I was driving in the middle of the country for some reason and I had a long road ahead of me and I was trying to listen to various AM radio middle of the night broadcasts about (laughs) what was going on. And it was a lot of, you know, really conservative talk radio that they would be like, and it seems like it's a dead near between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders can't say. And then they would have a call in to say they're both like the spawn of hell. And then it'd be (laughs) like, yep, that's right on. Keep on brother or some shit like that. And, but that's just Iowa memories. Hashtag. But, (laughs) Something interesting that I want to pull apart about this is sort of the the way that the the dates sort of impact the eventual outcome, because I think the person who 
is maybe wishing that this caucus had already happened might be Pete Buttigieg, because if you remember a couple of months ago, he led the Iowa polling and he was sort of considered the front runner in Iowa, but his support has dipped precipitously in the last couple of months to the point where he's now polling in third. Yeah. Let me see. That's the thing with these uh, primaries and such is that like weird things can happen. Like in the 2016 Republican primary in Iowa, fucking uh, Ted Cruz won. Mm-hmm. And he was not the winner. But um, I remember there being some buzz about Marco Rubio getting third, and that ended up in nothing. So all the Marco Rubio buzz ended the same way. Yeah, you know it's it's weird these this this primary con these primary contests. There's a way that you know all the spinsters like to you know spin whatever type of momentum or energy or placing third in Iowa is really good, but it's I don't know it's just kind of weird. I I let the contest be the contests. All right, here's here's something I want to do that'll test your research skills. Who got third in Iowa in the Democratic 2016 behind Bernie and Hillary? Who was like the nominal third place guy? I don't know. Oh, nominal third place guy. Was it like um, Martin O'Malley or somebody? Yeah, let me uh Yeah, it looks like Martin O'Malley. Nice. I'm proud of myself for that. I like the uh, Matthew Iglesias take that Martin O'Malley would have won the 2016 presidential election if he had been the nominee. I didn't hear that take. What's why? Oh, uh, he is just, you know, bland enough and he would uh, there would not be as much conceded ground to uh, Donald Trump on, you know, kind of Obama to Trump voters and or the people who feel alienated by the more progressive uh, politics of the Democratic Party and or Hillary Clinton being a woman, but. Well, there is something to be said. I don't know if you listened to the excerpt from Ezra Klein's new book, but that's that that's part of his his main argument is predicated on the idea that the biggest motivator for political turnout isn't support of a candidate, but hatred for the opposing candidate. So there might yeah. be something to that. Because. Whoever won the 2016 presidential election, either side was going to go to we lost against that person. And in the Democratic Party, we definitely felt that. And if the Republican Party had lost, they would definitely be like, we lost to Hillary Clinton. And which fair. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. (laughs) Um, So there is a. You know, I'm starting to think that maybe primary should be a little bit more closed process, but, uh, you know, that's a, I, I'm not fully fleshed out on that right now, so I don't have the talking points. Not but not adequately informed on that one? I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> Mod- moderately informed. Yeah. Let me see. Let me look at this. Clinton collected... I don't know how this works, but Clinton collected 700.47 state delegate equivalents to Sanders 
696.92, which I, I I don't know what that means, but I want to be 0.47 of a state delegate. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot more to say on it. Evan, you got anything else to say about the the Iowa caucus? I mean, we did the big overview of the history of the contest and why it's first and all that fun stuff. We did an overview of caucuses, which Joe is pro caucus these days. Iowa. Yeah, I mean, I think that that about sums it up. Um, Iowans, if we have any Iowan listeners, please let us know. We'd love your thoughts. And other than that, we'll be watching the results as eagerly as all of you. Yeah. I'm trying to figure something out to flesh this out a bit because we're running a little short. Hmm. Is there anything else more generally going on in the Democratic primary? I mean, I feel like we've kind of said what we have to say about it. Like, I don't know. At this point, I'm not a, I'm not, since we're getting closer to the actual nomination, I'm just kind of like, you know, these top four, I'm fine with them. Yeah. You know, at least on my, in my version of things. You You want to remind us of who those top four are? Top four are Warren. Uh, Bernie, Biden, and Buttigieg. And I don't know. I think either four of them would be decent Democratic presidential nominees. And so going forward, it's kind of, I'm not too worried about which one is the nominee. Now we could have bigger discussions about, you know, specifics of whatever the fuck, but um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not too worried about which one is going to be the nominee. I've cooled my jets a bit on Joe Biden. While I still don't like it, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, it's not as bad as I would think or I was thinking it was. Well, I'm heartbroken that Andrew Yang doesn't cross into that tier for you, but I understand. Well, no, I was talking about like the top four polling. Oh, okay. You see, this this is, I also was got by this when you like were doing your power rankings. I thought you were talking about who had the chance, but you were like in your eyes. Yeah, it was personal. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm talking about like in my, or, you know, in the, I'm doing punditry. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's going to be my plea. Um, I know that there's the, the vitriol has sort of heated up between some of the top candidates. That's to be expected. I don't really want to hold anyone, uh, hold it against anyone. But I do want to have a plea to all of my fellow Bernie supporters. Lay off Elizabeth Warren. I know that uh, I, I endorsed Bernie Sanders and I stand by it. But if, if it can't be Bernie, we would be damn lucky to get Elizabeth Warren through. She would still be the most progressive candidate of our lifetime outside of Bernie Sanders. And I'm just sick of the stupid attacks. You know, I don't care if she was a Republican in 1992. That's before I was born. She has shown a dedicated commitment to progressive ideals for my entire lifetime her policies, even if they aren't quite as progressive as Bernie's in some respects, 
They would be a huge improvement on the status quo. And voting for Elizabeth, uh, voting for Elizabeth Warren as a Bernie Sanders supporter would not be like pinching your nose and taking your medicine. If 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 you are a Bernie supporter and it ends up being Elizabeth Warren, I beg you, fight for her as hard as you fight for Bernie because it'll be worth it. But I still hope it's Bernie. And I would just say, if it ends up being any other nominee than Bernie Sanders, I would argue it would probably be in your better interest to vote for them than not at all, which is ends up being a vote for the victor of Trump, if that were to be the scenario. Um, but, yep. you know, I know some people... You know, take a page out of Bernie's book. Bernie has never been the spoiler. He's never been the guy who votes against better because it's not the maximalist vision he envisions. He believes, or, you know, at least in his congressional uh, life, he has never been the guy who, you know, and is the one vote short because he's holding out because something isn't too far or isn't far enough to the left. If something is better, he has voted for it. Um, even if it's, again, not the maximalist vision that he would hope for society. And, you know, I think, you know, at least from my viewpoint, I really don't like how Trump is running things. I don't like how uh, any of this is going. And I believe that any of these Democratic nominees, besides maybe Tulsi Gabbard, would uh, bring something that is, you know, maybe not what all we want, but would definitely be better. So that's my spiel. Well, are we all spieled out now? Mm, Can I dunk on leftists some more? Um, you can. Yeah, it's fun. Purity spirals. Gotta be pure. I don't know. We'll maybe get in that next time. But uh, I think this could be a good place to end it. A little bit shorter episode this week. Nothing wrong with that. No, change it up a bit. Do we have an end segment? Um, we did Um, not discuss that. I could riff on I could riff on 1917. I love that movie. Yeah, riff on it. I like World War One. Yeah, it's okay. So it doesn't come up very often, ladies and gentlemen. But I think World War One is absolutely fascinating because the the impetus for it was essentially one guy got assassinated, and it triggered this whole wave of secret alliances, which brought in every major power in the world who had absolutely no stakes invested in it. So it's just sort of mind boggling to me that there is such a flimsy justification for such a grand scale war. And then the warfare itself is so interesting because the tactics were responsive to the idea that the military technology outpaced what we could do in terms of military maneuvers where the thinking was on it. So we had machine guns that could kill a lot of people really quickly And so the only defense that soldiers had was to dig trenches into the ground and hope that they didn't have a a good, a guy with a good arm to throw grenades, you know, Um, 
And so you had the the battles where you would have to cross no man's land, which was really risky and ended up in a lot of people dying for not a lot of land being exchanged. And all of this, it's just not like any other thing in history. World War One is so unique and therefore, to me, very fascinating. So 1917 is a very straightforward story about two British soldiers being sent on a mission to catch up with a different uh, regiment of their army to alert them that the attack that they're planning is walking right into a trap and they are going to probably lose 1,600 men if this message is not relayed to them. The entire film is edited to appear as if it's happening in one continuous shot, and the effect that this gives you is that it doesn't give you any time to step outside and process what's going on. You just have to feel it viscerally for the entire two-ish hours. And I gotta say, in terms of just a deeply felt cinematic experience, 1917 really stands as a pretty amazing film. The anxiety, the grief, the bone-shredding intensity that I felt watching that movie is is unlike a film experience that I've had in quite some time. It's it's really I think if you don't like war movies inherently, there's not going to be anything that pulls you over, but if you're open to that sort of experience, it is truly breathtaking. Hmm. I like the sounds of that. Seems like up my alley. Especially, we saw it at a theater, thankfully, that had a really good sound system, so we could sort of appreciate just the the, the subtleties that Sam Mendes is going for with his sound design. And, I mean, gosh, when there's a battle sequence... It, it rattles your chest. The entire thing kind of made me feel like someone had had stuck their hand into my chest and was manipulating my heart to pound. It's it's <laughs> really it's it's almost sort of, sort of tough to vocalize my response to this movie because it was so tactile. But I loved it and I, I highly recommend it. If you think that you would like it, you probably would. Hmm. Hmm, I'm looking at Fandango. We have some late night showings going on. I could either go see that. I could go see Bad Boys for Life. Ugh. I could go see Doolittle 2020. <laughs> I think you know the obvious pick here. It's Doolittle. I, yeah. <laughs> I you know I haven't seen Jumanji the next level yet. Oh, Frozen 2, but I'd have to get going soon. Um, you know what? I think I'm going to go see Frozen 2. Well, anyway, guys, that's the podcast. Adequately informed. Uh, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. I Thank hope you, you like those who already have. We appreciate yeah, it. Those who have. Um, if you have any feedback, let us know. Uh, Got to thank Anthony Hish for the music, as always. Thank you again for listening. And... My name is Joe Hicks. Mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.